In typical George R. R. Martin fashion, this was another one of those chapters where I almost felt like I almost felt like I had a headache while I was reading through it. Like I was getting seasick because there's crying everywhere, Sam throwing up on himself, and you can just feel like the back and forth swaying of the boat and how miserable it's got to be. Welcome to Game of Owns. It's time for a look into the voyage of our dynamic duo, Samwell and John coursing across the Bay of Seals. For once, Castle Black is a place I'd prefer to be. Did you really write down that this was a miserable voyage? Because that was my second note in this chapter. George made this very clear. Oh, yeah. It's just one of those chapters, I agree, where you're reading it and you can't help but feel sorry for Sam because it's not like he's making it out to be worse than it is. I think, you know, there's a little bit... um, at times in this chapter that he gets chided for by Darian. But I really believe it's as worse as he's making it out to be. Normally, Sam is is the brunt of jokes and he gets made fun of for the fact that he's nervous or scared. But in fact, he's just dealing with what's being thrown at him. And he's he's in a really, really bad set of circumstances here. He even mentions it pretty close to the beginning about him putting on a brave face for Gilly's sake because she's never seen the sea before and at the beginning of the chapter at the beginning of the chapter he doesn't quite understand exactly what she's going through and that becomes a little bit more clear as we reach the end but I agree that I think that I don't think there's any exaggeration. And with the Feast with Dragons reading order, we have these two characters who are going through what they're going through just after parting, again, chronologically, but separated by the two books. And there are there are tiny references, some shallow. I may be reading more into some of them. I'm probably going to bring it up later on in the discussion, but I thought it was neat how George tied them together. And, um, you know, especially after we learn about John's role in the decision with Gilly's baby in this chapter and then going to him directly after dealing with the falling action of what Sam did to him, which is putting him in as the role of Lord Commander. It's kind of like they're both dealing with what they've done to each other. That's a great point. I didn't I didn't think of it that way, but it, it is somewhat poetic that they are dealing with the the fallout from the decisions that each other made on their behalf. Yeah, because in the John chapter, we know that he's Lord Commander, and ever since the Lord Snow became Lord Snow, we've seen him dealing with Stannis, we've seen the happenings with the Wildlings and the decisions that he's need to have made from a leader standpoint, but in this chapter, when they go into the Wormways and the discussions with Bowen Marsh about how much food they have, which seems like quite a lot, I think it all started to sink in for me that Jon Snow is young and we we do trust him because of his bravery and his sharp decision-making skills when it comes to times of trouble, critical problem-solving, when it's really important that someone has a level head, even though he doesn't have the same age as the rest of his counterparts. I feel like, I don't want to say for the first time because we've been in the story for a long time, but I'm curious if those of you reading at home or if you guys felt kind of the weight of his new position. I just felt really grateful that he had a a Lord Steward like Bowen Marsh that was able to take him down there 
and to give him the readout on what the Night's Watch is dealing with, because this is a big brotherhood. You know, this is a part of the kingdom that demands a lot of attention, and the Lord Commander needs to be knowledgeable of all of these things. And when it comes to surviving any winter, let alone this winter, with all that's happening with the War of the Five Kings South, and for the first time, this level of conflict with the wildlings happening directly at the wall, the day-to-day of the Lord Commander and the decisions that he makes are even more so important. And this is the time when Sam had the ability to put his friend in charge. Yeah, I was thinking about that as well, but maybe in a little bit different terms. I was thinking about John and the decisions that he's making in terms of, or kind of in contrast to Danny as well, and how they both have these very well-intended idealistic views of the world, um, but that the answers aren't always so practical or obvious or even possible. And so I think about Sam in this chapter when he figures out that the reason why Gilly is so upset, I wouldn't say he's angry, but you know, he's just thinking about how through all the trials that she's suffered, why does she also have to go through this? Um, And so I think that we're seeing a lot about John's ruling style and a lot of the hard decisions that he's had to make, um, especially when it comes to people he cares about. Being able to see like you were saying, Mike, the, the impact of the fallout of, or sorry, Zach, you said that, um, the fallout of everybody's, <laughs> I of, of the two of the decisions. Yeah, <laughs> you confirm. Um, Got to give credit where credit's due. But the fallout of both of their decisions is interesting to be able to kind of see that as John is growing more and more into a leader. I really liked what Eamon says when, I know this is the end of the Gilly chapter, but whatever, or the Sam chapter, but whatever. We can call it the Gilly chapter, The Gilly chapter. She was pretty important. <laughs> when Eamon says something along some lines of that this was Lord Snow's decision, that was this wasn't John's decision necessarily, this is something that Lord Snow did, which I thought was an interesting distinction as Sam and us as readers and people on the wall look at John as he's progressing into this new Role. position. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Think about this conversation versus the one we were having last week on Rewatch the Throne before that show went live. Jon Snow was pouting in the <laughs> courtyard of Winterfell. Hitting and... the practice dummy as hard as he can. <laughs> yeah, now he's <laughs> making big decisions. So if you're interested in following our new series on Hall FM, Rewatch the Throne, our first episode did go live last week. It's been fun to go back to the very beginning because especially... I mean, we're we're near the end of the series. Well, I mean, the end in as far as what's been written. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. We're far from the very end. I agree. And, and <laughs> as you said, Jon Snow being back at Winterfell in the courtyard, having to um, deal with the fact that he is the bastard of the family and having a really great one-on-one dialogue as well with Tyrion Lannister. And Benjen in that episode, mm. which I don't know if a lot of people remember. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that when you when you really think about it, you can remember the kind of conversation that took place there. But uh, we, and we talked about it on Rewatch the Throne when Benjen arrives and talks to John. Uh, that's when we start to, to take our early shape of his personality and understand it more. Because up to that point, he was he was John always, but there was Catelyn leering, or there was there was Theon kind of juxtaposing. Uh, his position while they were standing around the direwolves and he was again standing on the eaves when it came to um, the execution scene so there's a lot there in the first episode but uh, things kind of zoomed out after Benjen has the conversation with John and then Benjen has the conversation with Ned and I feel like those uh, talks have been so if you're if you're listening to us right now 
and you're you're in with us deep and thick and you're reading along in a feast with dragons and you are fully committed to the ins and outs of the political tailorings of stannis and john when it really matters great uh, but if you're also interested in rediscovering some of those early days with one of our friends who has never seen the series before uh go watch the show rewatchthethrone.com so back to the boat <laughs> the sea made samuel tarley green sick and it does for most of the uh most of the chapter not to dwell on on the fact that this poor guy is just vomiting all over himself vomiting into the wind having the wind blow the vomit back onto him <laughs> smelling That's pretty dirty. much the whole chapter though <laughs> yeah smelling dirty diapers dealing with crying babies dealing with a crying gilly it's just probably as bad as a situation as as sam could possibly ask for because and and i really do like this theme that's been brought up about being put in 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 a situation that it was never intended on the part of Sam to be on a boat going to Old Town, um, just like it was never intended for John to be Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And, sh- and so, you know, there, there's this line um, in the early part of the chapter where it says he did not want to leave his brothers, the only friends he'd ever had. And he certainly did not want to be face to face with his father, um, who had originally sent him to the wall to die. Um, and, and I feel like John very much is in the same boat. No pun intended, um, maybe a little <laughs> bit. But- you know, he didn't want to leave his brothers in the sense of becoming the Lord Commander. So they've both done this to each other, um, maybe with some intention, maybe inadvertently. So Sam has he's dealing with a lot right now. In addition to all the the nastiness around him, the fact that he's on a boat, the middle of the Bay of Seals, heading towards Skagos, and is is on as rough of waters as you could possibly want to be on at this time of year. He's dealing with the fact of potentially facing his father who has treated him horribly, threw him in the water at a very young age. We hear another story about possibly him being married off to uh, another highborn family and how that all fared. And it's just... It's more of the same with Sam. It's it's just like he's in this position where he just can't get himself out of it, no matter how hard that he tries. What do you think the importance was for for George to really hammer in the the misery of the of the voyage? Because I know we've talked about it a bunch, but you know the imagery about the dirty diapers, about how everything smells. I think a lot of it obviously owes to Gilly's unhappiness with the situation with the with the child, but I think it's all there. And it seems like the only person who's not miserable is Maester Eamon. And, and we can kind of understand that he's gone through a lot and his mind's in a totally different pr- place than those that are zoomed in here. But we, we see different characters reacting to the harshness of their journey in different ways. Sam thinks of Gilly. Gilly thinks of nothing but her child. The oarsmen eventually break and start to blame the closest thing, which is to blame, which is A, having a woman on board. Be that woman being a wildling. See that woman who is a wildling having a baby that's possibly done through incest or in her case is done through incest, but it isn't the same baby. Or then we have Darion who he's, you know, he's the fair haired, hazel eyed, handsome young singer who's singing songs and happy go lucky and staying on top of the fringe until eventually he even starts to break and cracks into the fire wine and moves on from there. Like, what do you, what do you guys think the point of all the misery was exactly? I feel like that's almost a much broader question than this chapter because at the very end when it ends on this line that made me laugh out loud, which is Sam says the world isn't done 
or the worst isn't done. The worst is just beginning and there are no happy endings. That I laughed out loud because I was like, George R. R. Martin, like, what are you trying to say to us about the series as a whole? I feel like part of what Sam maybe has to learn in this chapter, and maybe this is reaching, but I feel like he needs to gain a little bit of perspective. At the very beginning, he is very woe is me. Everybody else is going off to a better life and everything's really hard for me. And it's true. Um, as we're talking about all these awful things that his father has done to him, there's this moment when he remembers the last time he was on a similar journey when they dressed up some girl from the kitchens and then had beat him to death or not to death, but beat him with a <laughs> to sword. Tears. Close. Um, clobbered him until he cried. Yeah. To death. Wow. But I think that one of his character flaws, you could say, is that he gets very much wrapped up in his self and his struggles and his issues and his woe is me. And he is strong and a key player and important and smart when he kind of steps out of that a little bit. So I'm hoping that that's something that's coming or that's something that comes as he learns more about maybe why he's on this journey and, and the people that he's with. Yeah. I don't know if it's it's about a feeling any sort of comfort level for a character, but I think you know, we've come to learn that this is this is a book where not only the dead are being feasted on, but so are the living. And I feel like Sam, despite being on a boat, we should assume that, oh, you know, he's going into a situation where he's supposed to be protected, right? He's he's traveling to Old Town and this is a better life for him, and he's with Gilly and he's with Maester Eamon, and things shouldn't be as troubling as they are, but yet they are. Yeah. I mean, I think you're just, you're, you're supposed to get a sense that Sam is not safe, that his journey is going to take time and, and there's going to be a lot of things that he's going to have to overcome in order to get there. And I, I, I go back to the point that was raised earlier in the episode, Zach, that you made, which is, you know, he's almost being put in a situation that he he never asked to be put in um and, and and same with john and so now it's the struggle that both of them face in try, in terms of trying to, to to make their way out i feel like as readers when we when we heard that sam was leaving the wall our minds probably went directly to well he's going to avoid the others directly once that happens whatever conflict that that is indefinitely going to rise with the wildlings and with stannis if we didn't know from the show or if this was just the first time going through for anyone through the book series uh, you can assume that just the ticket out whether he wanted it or not from john was greener pastures for sam gilly and the baby and maybe maester aemon as well i'm not sure if we would have considered that he made it all the way i figure he's made it this long so his surviving uh, wouldn't necessarily put a damper on the the journey overall, but in in typical George R. R. Martin fashion, the moment Sam leaves, because this is his first chapter outside of leaving Castle Black, we didn't get to see his time at Eastwatch. We can assume that journey wasn't too perilous, but it probably wasn't comfortable. I'm sure if that we if we would have had a Sam point of view chapter between that time, he would have had plenty to harp about. But the difference here is it's real, and like I said earlier. Uh, it it eventually chips at the other people, the people that are even salt raised and have lots of experience, you know, on ships and traveling like this. And so for me, it was just like, I realize it. I get it. It's not going to be easy. Right. He's only getting started in his journey. Mm-hmm. And Sam even looks back and thinks of the time he talks about cold hands and the black gate underneath the wall and all that he experienced north of the wall, which for some may be easy to forget because these books are long and 
there's different eras in the story. He, he's been safe with John and they've been figuring out the voting situation, but he goes back to it and thinks of all the hardships that he's already gone through. And I know that this isn't quite supernatural, even though weather is so unpredictable. And in this case, it's super dangerous. It's only getting started for him. You know, he's got so much more to do. And that's exciting for me because I'd like to think that for George to continue point of view chapters with Sam after everything he's already done and to be sending him to Old Town and knowing what we've read forward at the end of A Dance with Dragons, it's cool. Yeah, it's really cool. It makes me very excited for what he's going to learn uh, while he's in Old Town. But I did want to mention a part in this chapter that wasn't awful. I felt like um, that moment when Maester Eamon and Sam are sitting up on the deck and it's raining. It starts raining and Sam tells him that he needs to come inside. And Eamon's like, no, I want to stay here. He says something along the lines of it's been so long since he's wept. And so he likes the way that the rain feels on his face because it feels like tears. Um, But they just kind of sit together. And I thought that it was like this very sad but almost sweet moment. I guess you could say that they get to kind of share that Sam's kind of encouraging him that they need to get below and that they can't be up on the deck anymore. And, and that whatever is happening down there um, is much better than up here. And she shakes him awake and Maester Eamon goes, egg, I dreamed that I was old kind of thinking that Sam was someone else. And so I think that that is a really interesting, a cool moment. This is the last thing that he says in the show, right? Mm-hmm. I couldn't remember. Egg. Yeah. Egg. <laughs> I dreamed that I was old. His last line in the show, which I think we have a little bit more time with him in the book. But I just, I don't know. I, I, I guess I can't really call that a sweet moment because he's dying. But um, I just think that there's so much that we could know and learn from Eamon. Even like sentences like that just have so much behind them. Yeah, I mean, that's a hundred years of, of a lot of knowledge. Mm-hmm. A hundred years of his lineage as well, where he grew up and the life that he led. Right. And and also the fact that he mentions not only Egg, but Sir Duncan, who saw him safely to Eastwatch and how his arrival at the wall was actually this big to do, right? That probably not too many other people get. As Eamon sits on the deck, having a conversation with his fellow sailormen. I was five and thirty and had been a maester of the chain for sixteen years. Egg, aka Egon, wanted me to help him rule, but I knew my place was here. He sent me north aboard the Golden Dragon and insisted that his friend Sir Duncan see me safe to Eastwatch. Now this on my first read is where the chills started to really set in and it had nothing to do with the stormy rainy weather. No recruit had arrived at the wall with so much pomp since Nymeria sent the watch six kings and golden fetters. Now that's a story. Egg emptied out the dungeons too, so I would not need to say my vows alone. My honor guard, he called them. One was no less a man than Brendan Rivers. Later, he was chosen Lord Commander. Blood Raven said Daron. I know a song about him. <clears throat> a thousand eyes in one, it's called. But I thought he lived a hundred years ago. We all did. Once I was as young as you. That seemed to make him sad. He coughed and closed his eyes and went to sleep, swaying in his furs whenever some wave rocked the ship. So there's a lot in that story. Just a few things here or there. Just a few things. Can we get a Maester Eamon chapter, please, before this is all over with? Mm. <laughs> Can you imagine a chapter from his perspective? I mean, in that one paragraph, that one story, we just got a lot of information. Just a ton of it. Absolutely. So, Blood Raven, Brendan Rivers, Thousand Eyes and One. Good friend of Maester Eamon's, chosen Lord Commander, important guy. Sir Duncan, important guy. 
no less than Sir Duncan the Tall, thick as a castle wall. What about those six kings sent to the wall and golden feathers? Lots of things have been happening in the Seven Kingdoms for a long time, and he's just casually telling a story in the middle of our current story on a ship while a baby soils his diapers repeatedly and Sam throws up on himself over and over. (laughs) Stuff like that makes me think that as sad as it is that he's kind of near the end of his life, don't you think he deserves a break a little bit? After everyone that he's met and everything that he's been through and all these people who have played large roles in the series and may continue to play large roles in the series, um, I think that it's time that he kind of take a little break. It adds a lot of weight onto this chapter because for some going through it and it just being the traveling portion of Sam not actually reaching his destination, like this stuff with Maester Eamon is the pool and and further chapters with Sam, listening to the words of Maester Eamon, I remember the first time I read it and we'll eventually get there. I've had conversations with a lot of my friends uh, that are in the fandom that are so excited about the information that Maester Eamon gives later and just him talking about that stuff and how cool it is, is definitely set up and preceded by this chapter with Sam, because up until this point, it's been a lot of tutelage and a lot of scheming and strategy at the wall while remaining, you know, a solid guy. But now I feel like even he knows all bets are off. He's just talking about Blood Raven. He's talking about Sir Duncan. He's calling people egg that aren't actually egg. And he's really looking inward on himself and knowing that his life's coming to an end soon. Yeah, I think that just adds another sad element to the chapter, in addition to a lot of the other things that we've already mentioned. You know, one of the other sort of big pieces of this chapter, and, and I know a couple of listeners gave their own to it, is is the mention of, of Skagos. And we get pretty close, up and personal, up close and personal, I should say, look at this island, um, probably closer than we ever want to get. We may be going there <laughs> in the future, perhaps. I felt like Sam may wish that they crash land there instead of going to Horn Hill. I thought he was considering it. Yeah, so I actually, I I have it up and I highlighted pretty much the whole thing. Perfect. The island sat at the mouth of the Bay of Seals, massive and mountainous, a stark and forbidding land peopled by savages. They lived in caves and grim fountain fastnesses, Sam had read, and rode great shaggy unicorns to war. Skagos meant stone in the old tongue. The Skagosi named themselves the Stoneborn, but their fellow Northmen called them Skags and liked them little. Only a hundred years ago, Skagos had ridden, risen in rebellion. The revolt had taken years to quell and claimed the life of the Lord of Winterfell and hundreds of his sworn swords. Some songs said the Skags were cannibals. Supposedly, their warriors ate the hearts and livers of the men they slew. In ancient days, the Skagosi had sailed to the nearby Isle of Skane, seized its women, slaughtered its men, and ate them on a pebbled beach in a feast that lasted for a fortnight. Skane remained unpeopled to this day. Well, great shack unicorns, huh? Right. That's my favorite part of this whole thing. It's like we have unicorns, but they're shaggy. They're not quite. <laughs> but they're even cooler and yeah. more intense. We've talked about Skagos before, but never have we been this close. I mean, for for a place that's so destined and, and lord, they get rather close to it. We're talking mm-hmm. eyesight to bodies on the beach. It's too close for comfort, in my opinion. This is a place that I do not want to go to. But do you think that the stories are true? And I remember when we had Jeff on, Mr. Beefish, we were talking about Skagosi and how this could all be a ruse to keep people off of their island. Mm-hmm. I mean, what better way? And will the others actually make it here if they do make it past the wall? I don't think these uh, people are probably as savage as they're made out to be. I, I like Brendan's theory that they're perhaps preceded by their reputation and there's more to them than just this 
cannibalistic nature. That said, it wouldn't put it past George R. R. Martin to have an island of cannibals yeah. uh, in the world of Westeros uh, or, or in his larger world, I should say. So I, I do think that based on the story that we're reading and we'll get there soon enough that this island will play a part um, in in the future. I can't wait for that. Mm-hmm. Skagos shakes the resolve of those in the crew. Gilly continues to be sad. Sam finally calls out and asks Mace Raymond for advice. Maybe she he knows of some potion, something. Maybe he's just carrying a, a bottle of something that will, will calm her down. He's desperate and he says, it is not fear you hear. Sam probably believes that it has something to do with the journey and you know, being this far away from this, even though they're in eyesight of land, you know, being on a ship this big out in the middle of the ocean during this stormy time. It is not fear you hear the old man told him that is the sound of grief and there is no potion for that. Let her tears run their course, Sam. You cannot stem the flow. And he tells Sam to basically see with his eyes and to understand the situation. And like we talked about earlier in this discussion, Sam realizes that Lord Snow, not John, uh, made the decision that Melisandre would be less interested in a baby born of Craster's seed than a baby born of Mance, the king of the north. Mm-hmm. One of my questions is, as we learn about this, is whether or not uh, it was something that Maester Eamon figured out for himself or something that John had a conversation with him about. I don't know if we know the answer to that question, but I do think that something that we have to wrestle with and something that John and also Sam and Gilly and everybody involved um, is whether or not this was the right decision. And I think that this was probably the best choice that John could have made in the situation. I think that um, it ensures safety of, of both kids. I think that in terms of what he had to do, this is probably the one that's going to cause the least amount of harm um, as upset as Gilly is now. We've known about it throughout throughout this whole discussion. And even though it's a big part of the chapter, um, it hasn't necessarily piqued a lot of our analysis and we haven't jived back and forth about the situation with Gilly and her baby and Dala's baby very much. And I'm not saying that it's not interesting and it wasn't a decision that was important for John to make, but what do you guys put stock into I don't want to call smaller plot points like this I'm not I don't know if it's going to pan out and eventually grow to something but George does this a lot and I think it's great world building because he's consistent like something needs to be done if Melisandre's there John understanding her practices with people of royal blood versus people that don't have royal blood just so Melisandre being there I feel like this decision just amplifies the character that we likes awareness of another character's presence at his place. So that's cool. But you know, it's a big part of this chapter. How how much stock do you guys put into small things like this? And do you think that it, that's what it was there for specifically just world building? Or do you think that there might be something more to stuff like this? Um, I think it goes back to a little bit what we talked about at the very beginning with kind of building out John's need to make tough calls. And I think that, as somebody like him who's fairly idealistic, and we can talk about this more in the next chapter because I think that um, his conversations with Stannis bring up a lot of these points, but I think that kind of the reality of being in charge comes with a lot of consequences, and so I see that as part of the reason why this happened and and why we learned about it. I, I think that also maybe part of the reason why we haven't talked about it a ton or we don't analyze it much is because we just really feel for Gilly. Um, and so there's really nothing to say other than the fact that this is a tough 
situation for her to be in and she's already been through everything and then to also have to leave without her son and not knowing what's going to happen to him and i think even john probably not 100 percent sure what might happen to him as well it's tough and it's it's hard and i don't know if there's anything more to it other than that and that might be a naive view but i think that a lot of it has to do with john and his his need to make tough calls and i think yeah, that's a great segue into the next chapter with john and and it it's more about the decisions he doesn't want to have to make than the decisions that he knows that he has to deal with his lord commander i mean i think he's put in a very tough spot by stannis that or at least being amongst those type of individuals like the queen's men at the end of the chapter and and you know he comes through for stannis and he tells him probably more than he should right oh yeah and mm-hmm. as a position of, of the lord commander where you're supposed to be neutral in all things related to combat in in westeros you know he he gives him a huge piece of information that can really win the north uh for stannis if he's able to to follow through on it so uh i'm surprised to to see that um from john but i think that there is part of him that probably does want to see uh stannis be successful and and maybe i'm i'm going out on a limb a little bit here but i that's what i that's what i took away from their interactions i mean there's definite Mm -hmm. tension between them but i don't think that he views stannis as being uh, a bad person you know i think especially considering that he saved john and the wall yeah i don't think so either i would slightly agree with that i also think that stannis is really just push John into a corner. Like I think I don't I think that John also doesn't have much of a choice. When he's talking a little bit later in the chapter about his plan to go and march on Dreadfort, John has this realization where he says he means to plunder our army, uh, food and clothing, land and castles, now weapons. He draws me in deeper every day. I think that Stannis has done a really, really good job of playing into exactly what John needs in order to give him what need he needs out of John. Um, and so I think it's probably a little bit of both. A little bit of John feeling something for Stannis and then also Stannis just being really, really smart about their interactions. I think that Stannis feels something for John too, though. And there's like this mutual, mutual something. I don't know. I just read the chapter and I feel like Stannis likes the guy. He cracks jokes in front of him. You know, (laughs) remember the the line when he was talking about suffering for 3000 men, I suppose I can endure some pipes and porridge. The king said, though his tone begrudged even that. It's just something he would say in front of Davos. Yeah, I actually got that feeling a lot throughout the end of this chapter. Is I felt like John was almost in Davos' place a little bit. A little bit. Davos isn't there. And Stannis clears the room and it's just him and John and Melisandre. And I, I, oh, I had this moment of, I bet this is what Davos is in every day. Or we know that Davos <laughs> is in. He's kind of the voice of reason. I think both of them, to Stannis and all of Stannis's men around him i think that he needs someone like davos or john to kind of come in with a little bit clearer head it's just the way i felt micah did you pick up on any of that i just feel like you know he listened to john obviously he gives john respect we can't deny that to a degree but he doesn't look at john like a justin massey or even you know the the people that the other men that higher or lower ranking in his company Mm -hmm. you know and i don't think it's only because he's the the Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. I'm sure that that helps. But him being Ned's son to Stannis, 
I think obviously helps a lot too. But just in general, I just think that he likes John. Hmm. I just think that he likes John. It's the way it feels to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think he sees him as another level-headed individual that he can have rational conversation with. And John proves that at the end of this chapter. Uh, but I, I think at the same time, John has his own motivations, right? He's trying to get rid of all the mouths that he has to feed. And Stannis is trying to get as much as he can from John. If he can't get his leadership and getting the North on his side as John Stark, of which he asks him again, he'll take as literally as much as possible through words and without force, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. It's even mentioned about all of the uh, armor that potentially the wall is going to have to give up uh, for for Stannis uh, and his men as as they move forward or, or for the wildlings. Uh, I forget exactly who, uh, but I, I remember that point later on in the chapter where he, he says, oh, he means to take our, our armor or something like that. Yeah, and he was worried that wildlings that are armored would be more dangerous, obviously, than wildlings that aren't. And uh, someone spoke up that that boiled leather would be fine. And then John immediately thought about, because he's going through it, right? I mean, this chapter, especially toward the end, uh, the beginning was with the Worm Rays and Bowen Marsh and a lot of the housekeeping and being a Lord Commander. But uh, this was definitely a face-off between Stannis and John, And it, it lasts for a good stretch of time. And there is so much strategy involved. And if you're interested in that kind of stuff when it comes to uh, political positionings and, and even military ideals when it comes to sieging, and strategies that play off of one another, not just for the single fight, but for the long way. I feel like Stannis clearly shows his intelligence. I know that some of his ideas are short-sighted and they're blinded by a lot of his ego, but I was impressed. And I continue to be, to be impressed by the kind of leader that he is when it comes to stuff like that, um, especially when it comes to listening to someone like John, who doesn't have the proven track record, who was castle-raised and is who he is. But at the same time, he doesn't have what Stannis has to show for. And Stannis is the brother of Robert Baratheon, who was the king. So I'd say that when it comes to being castle raised and having familial connections to making good decisions, Stannis definitely has the upper hand, you know, but he still communicates with John, tells him the truth. And I think he was asking, honestly, guys, I think he was asking John's advice in some cases when he wasn't asking for it. Still, I think that he was listening and considering and and most likely putting into action the kind of stuff that John was saying that he should do. Well, John's a smart guy and he understands the landscape of where Stannis is more than Stannis does in terms of the different house alliances and, and um, relationships and things like that. And I, I like circled all of that stuff and it was just like, I'm not good at this. Like all of this politicking is not really <laughs> up my alley. But John is smart and he's been paying attention. And I think that Stannis is good to listen to him and to listen to his arguments for and against, for example, him wanting to take dread for it. John is like, well, cool, that's fine or whatever, but here's X, Y, Z, why it's not going to work out. And here's why you're essentially going to be surrounded by your enemies if a small thing goes wrong. Um, and so I think that John has a lot of strength when it comes to this kind of stuff. And I think that Stannis is, is good to speak to him as an equal and to kind of take stock in some of that. Today's episode of Game of Owns is brought to you by Blue Apron. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. The holidays are approaching. Whether you're visiting or being visited, I strongly recommend cooking along with your family because it's fun to spend time in the kitchen. Yeah, cooking with my family is my favorite part about the holiday season. I can give no higher recommendation than 
choosing Blue Apron to fill your refrigerators this season because the ingredients are packaged. They give you exactly what you need. You know exactly what it's supposed to look like. It's delicious, and you're going to have fun doing it. If you're into it this month, December's got a lineup. Let's read it. Roasted pork and braised cabbage with barley and glazed apples. Thai green coconut curry with sweet potato and jasmine rice. And brown butter and chestnut gnocchi with Brussels sprouts and pea shoot salad. You can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash owns. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash owns. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Is this where we start wishing that John would have just agreed to rise as John Stark to abandon your post? <laughs> Go back to know. Westeros. Wait, that's Daenerys. <laughs> abandon your post. Go back to Winterfell. Stand up as the leader. Rally the men around you. And I don't know. Just seems kind of fun. I don't know. <laughs> Regret. I don't know. I so okay. This is probably the most interesting part of the whole chapter for me is when Stannis once again asks him if he can become Lord Snow or Lord, whatever of Winterfell, align with him, solidify all the alliances and whatever. And John's like, "How many times do I have to tell you no?" Basically, and Stannis is something that I think is really interesting. Um, let me get exactly what he says. After John says, my sword is sworn to the Night's Watch, uh, Stannis looked disgusted, which I think is kind of interesting. Your father was a stubborn man as well. Honor, he called it. Well, honor has its cost, and Lord Eddard learned to his sorrow. Um, that sentence I thought was so interesting because I think that it's weird for Stannis to be so annoyed by John's honor because I think that in terms of characters, he's probably one of the most honorable and rule-driven of them all. And so... It was interesting to me that he's so grumpy about the fact that John won't become Lord of Winterfell. Um, and so, I don't know. I thought that of all people to, to spit on honor, I guess you can say, Stannis is probably the last person to be able to do that. I think it's telling for Stannis, though, being so deep in his campaign. I think it was easy from Dragonstone to speak of it's my rightful place and because Roberts died and and... Either his son is natural born and not of age, but because that his son is not actually his, but a bastard of his wife's blood, not even his own, that I should be the rightful king. That's good and well, but let's think about what he did with Renly, and let's think about what he continues to do throughout the story. Even what he's doing here with John a little bit, I mean, it's not necessarily considered bad or dishonorable, but I feel like Stannis, he's very close to those of Ned. But uh, I think some of his mistakes are not quite going all the way in the role of honor, where some may bend and break. I think he he bends more than he breaks, but hardship and misfortune uh, at the end of the day still befell him. Just like anybody who sets out with this idealistic idea that they're going to change things and do things the right way and it's going to be fine and dandy. And then you get so deep into it here and you realize that. You kind of have to throw some stuff out the out the window. So, what's the moral of the story? <laughs> Be like John as much as you can, and make a really crazy snap decision, and hope to God that the fates are in your favor. Sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you look at the the two different ends of the chapter, right, you're having Lord Commander Snow figure out what the rations need to be for the impending winter. And then at the end of the chapter, trying to figure out how to deal 
with this man who's proclaimed himself to be king. So, I mean, I don't think you can get two more opposite ends of the spectrum, even though they end up being tied together in, in terms of how John is thinking through dealing with Stannis. He's trying to figure out any way possible to get him and his men away from the wall so that he doesn't have to feed all of these people and and basically empty his stores of what has been saved up over time. I mean, there are far more people now at the wall uh, than when probably the Night's Watch started to plan uh, for the coming winter. And so oh, yeah. uh, it's, it's interesting to see the different decision-making that John comes across in you know his role as Lord Commander. And one of the biggest challenges he has now is is dealing with Stannis. And, and you know, you talked about how the sort of the respect factor and, and why it seems odd that of all people, Stannis wouldn't value John's decision to remain Lord Commander, how he really, really wants him to just bend the knee and become John Stark. But, you know, I, I think it's because he's trying to have him serve his own purpose. I mean, honor yeah. seems to only be as valuable to Stannis in as much as it serves his own end. I think he's selfish in that sense, even when he's dismissive of what could have potentially happened to Davos. It's, you know, this is a guy who, you know, there's not a more loyal servant um, to a person in this entire story, I think, than Davos is to Stannis. And, and, you know, Stannis just seems to kind of like throw it, throw his name to the side, like just in a passing paragraph. I mean, that's, that's pretty messed up, in my opinion. I mean, in his defense, he did say there wouldn't be time because so much is happening for grieving. At least he acknowledged that there should be grieving for Davos possibly dying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but it's kind of sad that that's good. That's the way that he looks at it. <laughs> yeah. But John's knowledge definitely is is valuable in this chapter and, and you know what he's learned of the North and the Northern families and 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 how he plays this all out at the end of the chapter. I mean, you have to sort of tip your cap to him. Uh, there's no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's got great strategic strength. But something I wanted to point out as we're kind of talking about John's honorability, whatever, is that even a word? But between John and Stannis, is, we're starting to really see a lot of dissension among the brothers at Castle Black. And we it's only mentioned a little bit in passing John kind of shoves it to the back of his mind. But I think that as we think about John and his ruling style, as we see where this is progressing, as we know where this goes to, I think that picking up on all these things that John maybe is or isn't paying attention to, what he's forcing his his attention on, and the types of decisions he is making, even if he thinks they're the best and most honorable um, and whatever, why he's making those decisions... I think it's interesting to pick up on that as we kind of know where this is headed Um, because that's something that I didn't really see the first time I read through this series and I think it's something even as Stannis mentions back to Ned that maybe when you're reading through that for the first time you don't really understand where everything's headed Yeah, and so it's cool to kind of go back and see that swirling. That's cool. Swirling now. I wonder if Stannis saw it and knew it. I I hope that he didn't. But he probably did. I don't know. I think they're two different kind of situations, but I definitely think that he sees Ned and and John. Well, at least now it seems like the men are are split in half, half in favor of blocking the wildlings out and half in favor of of accepting them, if only because they won't be able to fight them again when it comes time. I love the analogy of uh, I think it was the duck being frozen in the middle of the lake. Like, great. But he's, you know, he's still there and he's easy to get to. And and. 
all the stuff that they have and all the stores that they have are fine and wonderful. But I, I thought about, I just sort of envisioned the future if winter were to come and we weren't, weren't worried about the white walkers and it was just the season itself and it was a blight and all those wildlings were on the other side of the wall that that really would be a lot of, could you imagine the trouble I'm seeing attacks battles on the wall that aren't about God and country and that aren't about, you know, a King rising or not, but it's literally about communities of people that can't eat, that can't survive and it's not what they wanted to do, but they had to do something like that. And that's what so many, so many of the men wanted to avoid. They want to avoid possibilities like that. And uh, much worse in this case, because a lot of it's been stoked by pre battles for other reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all that's happening. Plus John sees that they're going to run out of food basically. And Stannis is still fighting his war. He has that, yeah. That mentioned that he in the chapter where he's he's basically done fighting wildlings that it's time for him to to get back to what he originally was here for and to for lack of a better phrase put you know the fear of Stannis into the bodies of the North and let them realize that the king is actually coming he he feels like he sat idle for too long and I think that he's probably right but I don't know George crafted a perfect storm here. There's so many moving pieces and I suggest that you read this chapter to really get the back and forth from John and Stannis because to, to really capture the full scope of it, we'd have to read it word by word, passage by passage because they're talking about Deepwood Mott and they're talking about who's currently holding Moat Kalen and the timing of that battle with Ramsay Snow's people going south and with Stannis's men moving onto the Dread Fort and how all of that syncs up versus how it doesn't sync up ideally for Stannis and uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he gives John uh, time to listen, because I don't know if Stannis has had a true sounding board for these ideas, you know? Mm-hmm. These are one of those chapters when I'm reading through that I wish I had one of those huge maps that they all have on their big tables where they move the pieces around yeah. and kind of strategize that way. I think that would be really helpful. Did you notice when they were looking at the map, I felt like this was a really cute tie-in to pull our two chapters together chronologically speaking it says a finger this is when they were looking at the map and john uh, was standing there with stannis and melisandre and everyone it says a finger of warm wax was puddling out puddling keyword out across the bay of seals slow as a glacier i did not notice that is it you think i'm stretching or do you does the the candle represent bookish sam and the puddling across the bay of seals their their slow journey away from the wall let's say the wax represents sam (laughs) (laughs) hey i'm trying people (laughs) no i think that's good i think i think that's why this read through is fun because we get stuff like that that's like reading dance of dragons you never would think that so i'm cool with you making that comparison okay well i think the the elephant in the room is rattleshirt and the fact that magic appears to be completely real again with uttered spells and glowing rubies yeah something's up with that dude that's all i'm gonna say yeah the whole exchange was weird since we know what's going on there uh, i think it, it may stick out a little bit more than it did before but i have to go back to the fact that melisandre is comfortably uttering incantations and getting a physical response from something. And I'm just curious as to why no one in that room is just looking around and asking her how that's done or, you know, tell us how magic works. Because they're all her yes men. Because they're all hers, you know? <laughs> yeah, I get that. Which John notices earlier. He's kind of like, why is he's all... Which I th- is that what he was alluding to? That's how I read it. That he kind of walks in the room and all the people in there were like Melisandre's people. Yeah. And so I think that's why... Nobody thinks that it's crazy that she's got this like weird glowy gem thing on both her and 
battle shirt. <laughs> He's my ward. I control him with these gems. She speaks another spell to it. Like you said, there's there's a lot here. Yeah, there's a lot. You can only truly appreciate by going through and as you did mention, reading the chapters word for word, there's a lot of uh, subtext. I'll use that word. A lot of stuff going on beneath just the initial conversations that are taking place. And that's always the case in these chapters. A lot of dollars said. Yo. A whole lot of dollars said. And and he's going to get one of my own. I just, I haven't uh, decided which one. Back up to the, <laughs> the, the beginning of the chapter just yet. But yeah, he's definitely somebody who's going to get uh, one of my own for this chapter because the dude just brings the humor. He does. No matter he what. He even makes John laugh. Well, if he can make Stannis laugh, then. That's the real test. That's the real test. You're right. I guess with that said, then I'll give my own for the John chapter. So let's go through this exercise, Micah, of you giving us your dollar said quote of choice. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, there's there's only one where he's, um, well, he says, nothing beats a hot cup of horse blood <laughs> on a cold night. I like mine with a pinch of cinnamon sprinkled on top. Perfect. <laughs> that sounds so gross. My own for the John chapter was this little weird moment um, when... John is going, when they're going through the, the food rations, kind of talking about whether or not they have enough, there's a mention of, imagine how the men are going to react when they're eating acorn paste and snow. It made me laugh because uh, Bran is eating acorn, acorn paste and snow. And I was like, John, your actual brother, that's what he's eating. And you're worried about what your brothers in the Night's Watch are going to, how they're going to react when they're eating that as well. I just thought that was kind of funny. And can we put an aside quickly in these zones and just appreciate the granaries and the stock rooms of Castle Black and how much stuff they actually have. And how John puts his hand on like <laughs> something of meat and it gets stuck to it. It's like, what do you expect? Mm-hmm. He's like in the world's greatest freezer. And was that the burned one or was that the I'm not sure. his normal hand? They're using the bottom of the wall. Check this out. Picture this. Why not do it? They're using the bottom of the wall as a freezer for their freshest cuts of meat. So there was haunches of deer in there and some of it had gathered hoarfrost and, and John even considered it too cold as it freezes. It's probably going to burn the the meat, but I mean, come on. That's one part of Castle Black we haven't got to see yet, which was the warm ways and you know understanding how they, they travel. And I feel like it was just a, a nice tip of the hat with the storms in Sam's chapter and with the warm ways and the divvying of the rations and the rationing in general. Winter is absolutely coming. Just a little hint. Just a little hint. In case you weren't sure. Right? <laughs> and those reminders are going to come. Anyway, they're going to be coming. <laughs> I just think it's funny how he how he teases the weather out. It's slowly slipping from autumn to winter. But I'm going to give my own to Ghost. <laughs> Period. Sorry. Sorry. No. <laughs> just appreciate Ghost Homes, guys. It's probably all you're going to get when he's in these chapters going and, forward. And for scaring Davos' son. <laughs> yes. Terrifying him. He was like, he 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 won't hurt you. Then he the kid flinches, and then Ghost immediately bares his teeth. <laughs> yeah, that's John's fault, though. I know how that is, though. So Ghost, yeah. silence of four feet. Thank you, sir. All right. Well, for the Sam chapter, then I just like the internal thought from Sam that fat men take a cushion with them wherever they go. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, that was good. I don't know if it works that way. It might. <laughs> I mean, I probably know. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there all there also was a a shout out to Yorin, uh, mention of Yorin in this chapter. Daron replaces Yorin, and we get a description of the job they had. Which this is his job description: singing of the valor of the Night's Watch, and from time to time, reverting returning to the Wall of New Recruits. Not a bad job. That job rocks. 
Um, I'm going to give my own to a moment with Darren, actually, uh, when they're talking about the rovers before they start to get really grumpy and how he would sing for them. And they list off a bunch of all their favorite songs. And they say, or it says, when he sang the bear and the maiden fair, all the oarsmen joined in and blackbirds seemed to fly across the water. Yeah. Um, a nice little shout out to one of my favorite Westerosi club bangers. My own goes to Lord Redwine's Fool and his sense of humor. They're visiting. This is from Sam's past. Randall says, the boy needs a bit of seasoning. That's all. His father had told Ro- Lord Redwine that night, but Redwine's fool rattled his rattle and replied, aye, a pinch of pepper and a nice few cloves and an apple in his mouth. Thereafter, Lord Randall forbade Sam to eat apples so long as they <laughs> remain beneath Baxter Redwine's roof. Well, those are our owns. Now it's time to hear from you. You, you, the listener. To kick us off first on Facebook, we have Louis Philippe Filon. <laughs> here we go. Oh, man. Louis Philippe Pylon. Yeah. No, I'm just going to just, who says, own to John and Sam for being super, super good buddies. In parentheses, I'm not reading along, but I'm always listening. And it's been a while since I've heard my name butchered on the podcast. So. Oh. There you so go. it's been a while. Okay. Sorry, Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> Momo, at Scheming Sailor, anti-owned to Stannis for being the only Baratheon to hate parties for 3,000 men. I suppose I can endure some pipes and porridge. Also, owned to Sam for learning fat men can take a cushion wherever they go. Hashtag junk in the trunk. All right. Me and Momo agree, I guess. Uh, Heathen King tweeted in to say, John owned a rattle shirt for getting some snappy new jewelry. A glowing ruby like the one Mel wears. And on to George R. R. Martin for setting up Sam to believe that he's doing all this for happy endings, only to realize there are no happy endings. Julia Harris Green on Twitter says, Stannis owns John. You haggle like a crone with a codfish, Lord Snow. Did Ned Stark father you on some fishwife? Question mark. And then Julie also says, Eamon owns Sam. You have two good eyes, yet you do not see. And Brienne of Tarth writes in, her raven flew, Sam owns a Sam for getting good at being sick. Everyone has to be good at something. Hashtag silver lining. Also, John owned to Ned and by extension, John, for being so stubborn that it manages to annoy even Stannis of all people. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm saying. And finally, Jerry in Laos at unloused on Twitter says John owned to Northern nicknames. You wouldn't want to meet dudes called Horsebane, crow food or big bucket alone on a dark night. Big bucket though. I mean, yeah, I like that one a lot. <laughs> big bucket of what though? Right. And Jerry's own for the Sam chapter goes to the Island of Skagos gets mentioned often. So some crazy shit has to go down there. Hashtag Chekhov's Island. And now for the first time of all time, for our podcast, at least. And it might be for other Game of Thrones podcasts. I'm actually not sure if other podcasts collect tones for Game of Thrones. It wouldn't be weird because there is Tyrion Lannister, right? And there is Dolores Head. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't think they can legally call them owns. I think we own yeah, that. Yeah, TM. 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 Best moments, cool moments. We've seen your tweets. We know what you're talking about. Anyway, for the first time ever, season one is under the magnifying glass. We've discussed the pilot winner is coming on our new series, Rewatch the Throne, and we're going to be collecting owns for the King's Road starting now. So send in your tweets for the King's Road. Robert Baratheon and Ned have a picnic outside. Mike and I have been quoting it literally for years. Now is your chance to quote it alongside us. And experience it if you've never experienced it before. And if you have, I mean, 
who doesn't want to go back and relive that moment Gods. over and over again? And we've never experienced it all together. So that's a plus. Tyrion 5 and Jamie 2 are next in the Feast with the Dragons. You heard me correctly. Tyrion and Jamie back to back. All that sex in one room. Who's going to be able to touch that fire? Can I go out on a limb and say the next Tyrion chapter might be one of my favorite chapters? Really? Uh, definitely in A Dance of Dragons. All right, then. So no pressure for us or anything. Send in your owns. You know what to do. For those uh, two chapters, you can send us in your owns, much like your fellow listeners did for these Sam and John chapters. And you can do so in a number of ways. You can tweet at us at Game of Owns. Scroll upon our Facebook wall at facebook.com slash Game of Owns, or uh, send us an email at contact at Game of And uh, one other way you can leave your feedback for the show, if you like what you're listening to, uh, head on over to iTunes and rate and review the show. Uh, in this month of December, mm. nothing less than five stars is acceptable. It's a December tradition. It is a December tradition and a longstanding rule of this show. Uh, you don't want to figure out what happens if you don't rate and review the show. Five stars. You will be shipwrecked on the Isle of Skagos. There you go. We always do appreciate uh, the feedback that you provide, uh, and it lets other fans of this show and this book series know that we're out there and we're talking about it. So thank you in advance. And if you want to support the show, you could also head over to patreon.com slash goo and check out all the stuff that we put up there we've got another podcast called the squad of ice and fire uh which is basically turned into a westworld podcast as of late so check it out at patreon.com slash goo i gotta know micah's thoughts on the finale it may or may not be happening as we speak i think that's all from us we thank you for following along with the show in our read through in this off season season seven is approaching I'm not sure if you saw it, but the first images of season seven were released through some kind of holiday preview on HBO's other shows. You can see it if you're watching Westworld. I'm sure you've probably already seen it. And uh, there's a lot to talk about coming. But uh, thanks for joining us neck deep in the books. This has been a lot of fun. And we'll see you for one of my fave chapters. <laughs> so, so get hyped. You got to read. <laughs> Don't let me down. Don't let me down.